This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 21st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Double jeopardy should not apply to people charged with crimes in the United States. This week, the Supreme Court moved to uphold a large exemption to that constitutional provision. Cato's Clark Neely and Ilya Shapiro discuss the Gamble case. Mr. Gamble uh, is uh, a felon, and he was in possession of a firearm in violation of both state and federal law. And so he was convicted under Alabama state law, um, uh, punished with a 10-year sentence, nine of years of which were suspended. The feds decided that was not enough punishment. So then they charged him and got another conviction and uh, tacked on another three years uh, for that charge. And he challenged this, uh, not that you know he was not a felon in possession, but that this was the government is penalizing me twice for the same crime. That would seem to violate my rights under the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment. And anybody who took 10th grade civics should be aware of this particular prohibition and why it exists. Well, like so many things, um, what you learn in 10th grade civics about the Constitution, you then have to go to law school to unlearn um, because your impression from 10th grade civics would be exactly right. The whole point of having a double jeopardy provision is to make sure that the government doesn't get two bites at the apple. Uh, and that's exactly what happened in this case. But you have to go to law school to to then dig down into the doctrine to realize that the Supreme Court has been allowing this to happen for at least 70 years. So what is the the rationale that has been presented and is now believed by some to be venerable uh, in this exception to uh, the Bill of Rights? It's called the dual sovereign doctrine or the separate sovereigns doctrine. That is, in our system, the states uh, are separate sovereigns. They are not subunits of the federal government. Nobody disagrees with that. Indeed, the framers uh, divided sovereignty divided power in this way to protect liberty. If there were uh, more governments, if the new federal government didn't have all the power, then presumably liberty uh, would be protected. And this double jeopardy clause was meant to prevent um, you being tried again and again and again. Uh, the, the, the problem was um, that uh, now where we have a proliferation of federal law and there's great overlap with state law, which certainly was not the case 200 years ago, um, you have opportunities not for the same sovereign, for Alabama to retry Mr. Gamble or for the feds to get two bites at the apple, but for these two separate sovereigns. So we have the dynamic where a, an institution or a structure that we generally like as libertarians or originalists, uh, that is federalism, the, the division of, of, of power sovereignty into two, uh, here it operates uh, or has been read by the Supreme Court to operate in a way that hurts liberty. Well, and the the specific rationale, uh, I mean, it really boils down to a very lawyerly and one might even say hyper-technical um, reading or, or definition of a word uh, offense. So the Fifth Amendment says that no person shall be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb uh, for the same offense. And um, the whole case comes down to whether offense essentially means, you know, a sort of a, a, a violation, just, you know, conduct that, that constitutes a crime of some kind, or which would be the natural understanding, or whether it has a much, much more technical understanding, which is that an offense properly understood in this context um, is the is the sort of the the legal statutory embodiment by a particular government uh, of a particular crime. 
And that's the way Justice Alito reads it and says, well, then that term offense in the Fifth Amendment um, uh, properly understood uh, means that you can have a federal crime, in this case, felon in possession, that is one offense, and then you can have a state crime, felon in possession, and that is a separate offense. So that's why you can have two different prosecutions because those are, in his understanding, two different offenses. So there, this was, case was seven to two. Uh, the Alito write, wrote for the majority, the two dissenters, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Ginsburg, what were their arguments uh, in opposition to this idea? Well, if you'll allow me to uh, indulge me by reading the Gorsuch's first paragraph, because this really encompasses all of this theory as applied to this seeming technicality. A free society does not allow its government to try the same individual for the same crime until it's happy with the result. Unfortunately, the court today endorses a colossal exception to this ancient rule against double jeopardy. My colleagues say that the federal government and each state are separate sovereigns entitled to try the same person for the same crime. So if all the might of one sovereign cannot succeed against the presumptively free individual, another may insist on the chance to try again. And if both manage to succeed, so much the better. They can add one punishment on top of the other. But this separate sovereign's exception to the bar against double jeopardy finds no meaningful support in the text of the Constitution, its original public meaning, structure, or history. Instead, the Constitution promises all Americans that they will never suffer double jeopardy. I would enforce that guarantee. In other words, if you read federalism as a way to expand or multiply government power, or give it more shots at uh, depriving someone of their life, liberty, or property, you're doing it wrong. Well, I'm, I'll read a much shorter quote from Justice uh, Ginsburg that uh, I think sort of accurately sets the uh, uh, describes the current state of affairs. She says, the separate sovereign's doctrine has been subject to relentless criticism by members of the bench, bar, and academy. And in fact, there may be no other constitutional doctrine that has been subject to more sustained uh, and more persuasive criticism. It is an absolutely hyper-technical and lawyerly interpretation of a provision that was very clearly designed to do a, a much different thing than what the Supreme Court interprets it to do. And it puts defendants in exactly the position you would imagine that the framers wanted to make sure they were not in, which is, especially now that we have the federal government effectively exercising a general police power uh, under which they have replicated the criminal codes of most states, so that now, contrary to the way it was at the framing, nowadays, if you commit a state crime, there's a very good chance that, you, that, that you've also committed an analogous federal crime. And so under this doctrine, virtually everybody who commits a crime in the United States is in a position where if the government chooses to, uh, the federal government, if you get prosecuted by a state, if the federal government chooses to, they can probably come in and take a second crack at it so that if the state prosecutes you and you win, you're acquitted. Do you think you're home free? You're supposed to be under the, the, the Constitution as properly interpreted, but under the separate sovereigns doctrine, nope. The, the, that federal prosecution can be out there um, just hanging over your head like the sort of Damocles. So how does this change how uh, prosecutors at the federal and state level are going to do their jobs when it comes to – I'm thinking particularly of high-profile uh, criminal cases where maybe a state would like to take a crack at something and the feds say, oh boy, this looks juicy. It won't change it at all. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. This case – there was no circuit split. There are no different circuits, you know, not having uh, the the dual sovereignty exemption, and uh, the circuit below turned out in the same way that the Supreme Court ended up ruling seven to two. It's very rare for the court to take up a case with no circuit split and then just affirm it overwhelmingly. What is the point of that? And I think it's because there was a lot of doubt. 
Uh, and I guess they wanted to squelch that growing, uh, uh, I don't know, discontent. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. The strongest argument for the majority is stare decisis, as uh, Justice Alito points out, meaning the respect for previous precedent. Uh, this is a uh, many, many decades old uh, uh, a dual sovereignty exemption, and so we shouldn't upset the apple cart. Uh, although Justice Thomas, while he concurs in the result, he does so because the framers didn't contemplate uh, applying the not applying the double jeopardy uh, doctrine in, in this manner, and Clark may have something more to say on that. Uh, but he says, uh, sorry, decides is not a good enough reason because we should really, you know, and he applies this more broadly as part of a broader discussion of everything from abortion to economic regulation and rational basis review and everything else. Uh, he really doesn't like decides something is wrong, uh, we should overturn it. But here in particular, this ties into Cato's brief. We made the point that, look, when the doctrine was first devised, two things were radically different from the case now. One is the explosion of the federal criminal code, most of it unconstitutional from our perspective because it doesn't have a tie to interstate commerce or whatever else, whatever other constitutional justification. But secondly, in the interim, the double jeopardy clause was incorporated against or applied to the states. That is, originally when the dual sovereigns doctrine arose, uh, the double jeopardy clause didn't even apply to the states, and now it does. And that's why I think uh, it's a little uh, you know, too clever uh, to say that uh, just because we have this longstanding precedent, we can't overturn it. Let's step down from the sort of the, the lofty um, realm of theory to what it is like to be a defendant and understand that the following conversation is entirely plausible under this doctrine, you could have somebody, for example, next person who gets ar arrested, for example, for being a felon in possession, and but this person, let's say, has you know a pretty good defense. Maybe maybe they say it was the passenger's gun or something like that. Here's a conversation that could actually unfold. You could find yourself as as the you know the 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 suspect slash defendant in that case in an interrogation room, looking at two different prosecutors. Uh, one who's a you know an assistant DA for the state of Alabama, and the other one who's an AUSA for the United States government. And the AUSA could, from the DOJ, could look at you and say the following: You know what? You got to ask yourself a question. Do you think? Because you're in plea negotiations, you're always in plea negotiations in these cases. And and a DOJ prosecutor looks at you and says, "Do you think you can beat us twice?" So you're going to go up against my friend here from the state, and I'm going to watch that trial, and I'm going to see everything that works and doesn't work. And if you get acquitted, I'm going to try. I'm going to. I'm going to then get you indicted, and I'm going to prosecute you. And I'm going to take all of that information that I got in that first trial, and I'm going to make sure I do it better. Now, do you think you can beat us twice? Do you think you can beat the state once and then beat the the federal government for the same prosecution? I bet you can't. Um, do I think those conversations routinely happen? I do not. But it underscores just how much power you put in the hands of prosecutors in a case like this. There is nothing to prevent them from coordinating in that way. And maybe they don't have the, the, that explicit conversation that I had, but if you don't think they don't work together, if you don't think they don't coordinate prosecutions in some cases to make sure that the defendant is up against the scenario I just described, then I've got news for you. They do. Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute, and Ilya Shapiro directs Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 